2: Hi, welcome to Horse Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stevenson. Today I'm talking to Di Lampard, the Olympic Performance Manager for the show jumping team. She's also the selector for the Olympic team. And I'm talking to Claire Williams, who is the Executive Director of Beta, where we're talking all about safety and also prohibited feeds. This is Horse Hour. A brilliant lady on today. You will have heard of her. Obviously, she's been in all the papers. Her name's Di Lampard, and she's the performance manager for British show jumping. How are you, Di? I'm very well, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us on Horse Hour. It's not long until the Olympics, so there's not a lot of time for you to get things done, is there?
3: No, I mean, it's absolutely fantastic now. I know what to expect from from my position, having been in it 12 months. But um, we're certainly on countdown now to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Last year, it was getting. We, we weren't qualified for the Olympics, and from mm-hmm. February through to my appointment through to August was when we were going to qualify. Oh,
4: at Arkansas.
3: Wow. Yeah, and we, we managed that in Arkansas. So um, that 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 was a, a really short time scale to get everything in order and and get the team together to qualify. And now I've completed the twelve months. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, we're looking forward to Rio. So that's the position we're in, really, Amy.
2: Oh, amazing. What does it take to become an Olympic rider or to get to that level? Because some of us dream of it when we're little, you know, but we don't actually know if it's even possible or if it's even achievable for us.
3: Yes, um, you know, lots of riders that come into this sport are sort of pony-mad children, aren't they? And Mm. it is a dream for them to go to the Olympics. Um, but through their careers, whether they're from horsey backgrounds, horsey parents or mm. non-horsy parents, then their pathway through is quite different. Yes. Um, some start riding very young and usually with some of the lads, some of the boys, they don't come into it till later. They probably have the first sit on a grey pony and start the basics and then they go off and do other things. Mm. and uh, not till later in life do some of the, of the lads come back into the sport but it takes a lot of dedication mm. a lot of determination you have to have your sights fully set on your goal and you have to work very hard and stick to it
2: So when you're looking, you're going out scouting you're looking for somebody that potentially you could work with over a number of years what, what's the age that you're looking at?
3: Well you recognized talent, natural talent as an early stage. Um, this, is, this is evident how you see the young riders progress and the different ponies that they ride. So at that age, you're, you're seeing them probably even at 14, 15, 16 years old. And then they make that transition into horses and young riders. And you're scouting them all the way along. But realistically, where I'm coming from now, I mean, the, the age scale that we're looking at, we have young mm. Jessica Mendoza that's 20 years old this year, mm. and she's um, a potential Olympic rider. Likewise, the other end of the scale, we have John Whitaker that's 61 this year. <laughs> that's
2: um, what I love about the sport, is it's, everybody can do it. it absolutely.
3: Um, and, you know, it, it's very much like experience in, in this game. Unfortunately, like, like other athletes where they have a peak age and even you see them in, in football when at 30-something they start to move around in a different position and they, they go down the, the leagues probably to, to keep in the sport. Mm. You know, our guys and girls, they're, they're just getting going. At that age, they're just getting a vast amount of experience en route, and they're probably riding in their first championships at 35 and
2: 40. So if there was a parent then that thought that their child had talent, do they have to send them to the competitions? Is that where you scout them, or do you have specific days where you can take your child for you guys to look at?
3: It is really competitions Mm. that you see the riders, for sure. It's very difficult to judge somebody just riding in, in their own comfort zone. In their arena. I mean, the competition is what we're all about, and um, usually, usually, you know, as athletes progress, they have they have this ingrained them. They want to win. Mm. They are very competitive in their mind to improve and get better. Um, you know, there there are certain riders out there that are winners, and um, you know, they're the ones at the top of the sport that put everything into place. In their, their horse management and their management, their lifestyle as well is very important, the lifestyle that they lead to, to get a team around them to make this possible.
2: It's brilliant. It's like um, they, they have to be proactive and they've got to be tenacious themselves and those are all qualities that we see in all top equestrian riders they they have they have wanted it enough to push themselves so far and then you help them get them that extra little bit further is that correct
3: that's absolutely right and we're we're very lucky because we're well supported by uk sport and um, the national lottery funding mm. and we can help that we can if you like um, from this natural ability we can hone it and and put put the little bits on to to make them a top athlete
2: So we're going to Rio very soon, so it's really exciting. Um, And it's the final qualifiers that are coming up shortly?
3: Well, at this stage, everybody has their own programme of resting their horses and having the goal to peak in Rio in August. They're looking oh. at peaking around the 15th to the twelfth to the 19th of August.
2: That's really interesting. So there's actually a plan where the horses have to rest so that they they're not worn out by the time you get to the actual day.
3: Absolutely because modern show jumping today the horses can compete for 12 months. And obviously they they get tired. Mm. Um, and the horses have so many air miles today, they travel around the world unbelievably, whereas probably 10 years ago, they would probably get on a plane once or twice a year.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
3: and now they're probably five times a year on a plane or six times a year on a plane.
2: Well, logistically, getting to Rio must be a nightmare.
3: Well, it it, it seems as though it is, yes. And of course, we're coming on off the back of a home Olympics. So all the. Sports staff at the world class have to look back and get everything together again to move forward eight years on to to, to Rio, traveling to Olympics. But as I say, the horses are accustomed to it, especially in the show jumping.
0: Mm.
3: Probably more so, definitely more so than the dressage horses and the event horses and the para horses, but it will be quite a challenge for them.
2: Do they have to sedate them, or are some of them fine just with flying? No, no,
3: they're absolutely fine. Um, you know, they're very professional handlers that load them at the airports, and they go in stalls, and they're like crates that go up onto the aeroplane. Occasionally, some horses get a little bit bored with waiting. This process does take quite a while to load. Mm. If you can imagine, if there's probably 40, 50 horses on a flight, to load them all process does take a while so some horses get impatient they get bored and then they start banging and kicking and Mm. pulling faces at the horse (laughs) next door and by the time they take off if some horses do get upset then yes they will sedate them Mm. but um on the whole horses travel extremely well they fly very well
2: and what about the riders do you need to sedate them (laughs) because some people (laughs) are scared of flying (laughs) um,
3: they will be very excited when um I think the, the chosen five, when they get on that plane, they'll they'll be well focused.
4: Mm-hmm. They'll be
3: over the excitement. They're professionally enough to. Um, they know what what's in store but definitely there'll be a, a good team spirit when
2: they get on the plane so little jessica i say little i shouldn't really but she is only 20 so we, st- we still think that she's so young this is going to be such an amazing experience for her how are you going to help because john Whitaker, for example is a lot more experienced than he's done it before so what would you psychologically have to help jessica with to help her overcome those nerves
3: well, Jessica's been in the position this last year where she's had a lot of pressure put on her to compete mm. for the teams to get into qualifying for Rio at Arkham. She's a very cool girl. She she is un- unbelievably focused and such a, a very good competition rider. Rio will take it to the next level, of course. But having had the experience of qualifying through the Nations Cups for Arkham and then Actually, after Arcan, she went on to Barcelona, which was the Nations Cup final. She improved from her experience in Arcan. She doesn't particularly get nervous,
0: mm. but we
3: will support her. And the team of riders around her will support her. They, they Although they were all, if you like, challenging each other for five positions in Arcan, they were very supportive of each other. There was... A, a fantastic teams spirit and camaraderie that um they they helped each other
0: mm. which
3: was which was really great to be part of and I think when athletes are performing at their highest level they are relaxed and they're relaxed in the environment and they're having fun.
0: Yeah.
3: We try as as world class and um the support that are given to the riders, we try and take every distraction away from them and just try and Leave the views to concentrate onto the competitions.
2: And it's nice. It is really lovely that they get on so well. You can definitely see that. And there's nothing better than watching a rider come out and they're smiling. You know, we know it's a big deal. We know that they're nervous, or they. In Jessica's case, she's not that nervous, but it's nice to see them enjoy it.
3: Very much so. And sportsmen and women at the highest level. Do you know they put so much into it? There's so much focus. Mm. and they they carry a huge weight on the shoulders of all, all the team as much as we try and take the pressure off of them they want to do well for the team they know that they're the spearhead and it's down to them to go out and perform in that arena mm. and sometimes the concentration it does make it look somewhat awkward for the the viewers to think gosh they they don't look very happy you know I'd be re- you know one can sit, it's easy to sit back and say Gosh, I'd be really happy. I'd be smiling if I was in that arena today, uh, riding in there to represent my country. But the concentration is tremendous. But mm-hmm. um, when they finished, I, I think the smiles do come through.
2: Yeah, it's, they always... The it, relief. And, <laughs> it always looks lovely. It really is, genuinely. I, I feel very proud to watch our great British riders. You know, they represent the country amazingly well. They look beautifully turned out. They always, always, in every... You know when you, you, the TV shows are filming and you see them in the background, they're always representing themselves so, so well in a really professional, nice, warm manner. It's lovely to watch. Um, and you've been there, haven't you? So you've experienced it yourself. You know what it's like to be in that, the position that they're in. So I guess it's easier for you to help coach them through that.
3: Absolutely. Um, it is one advantage. And, um, you know, I look back to my experiences and I think as a rider... You look through rose-tinted glasses at your own performances and you get swept up in this. And it's quite nice, if you like, um, with a different hat on now of being a performance manager and, and selector. That mm-hmm. you do see things in, in a different way. And I can help those riders. I know what they're feeling. And usually when I approach them on anything, actually, even outside of selection... I I know their feelings, I I feel for them, I know what they're going to say and I've I've usually got a good idea of their answer that they're going to give me so um, Mm. I feel quite well prepared on that front but that's only from having the wonderful experience of having competed at that level and with a lot of these riders, Mm. competed alongside of a lot of the riders that are shortlisted for Rio. Who,
2: Who do you think the main competition is this year for us? It's a very interesting question actually because
3: The Germans in the past have have been dominant, but for the last few years they've actually slipped, slipped a little bit. Mm. So I I think this year the Germans will come back strong, and they're having some really good results with younger horses at a high level.
0: Mm.
3: So I do think um, the Germans will will be a a force. I also think the home team, the Brazilians. They too have had some good form, and um, being on home soil, and the experience of the Rodrigo Pascual with them and, and his father behind the whole team, I think I think they'll be a strong force as well. And of, of course, the Dutch are flying. They've been European champions, World champions. Their riders are doing extremely well, and we'll have to see whether they can hang on to this success because um, they probably have a. Point to prove, having been silver medalists in in London,
2: yes yeah absolutely is it is it more that you guys concentrate on what you're doing, or do you watch the other riders and monitor how they ride and and their techniques and their tactics i
3: try, I advise the riders to concentrate on their performances only mm. and not even look at the other british riders this is This is what can happen. But to look further out of the box, they, they all notice what the other European teams are doing the, and mm. world teams are doing. They, they all take it on board. But I think as riders they should concentrate purely on on their own performances and their own horses. I think this is for me to look out, out there a little bit and look at the wider and see what we can take from other teams mm. and go forward.
2: And when's the announcement then of the, the official Olympic team?
3: well it'll be beginning of july july the 5th there'll be an announcement of of, of the team so before then there'll be several five star nations cups that we will be getting the riders together mm-hmm. to work together as a team we we have five to select from prior to that date and several five star grand prix as well to look at oh and, gosh. Um, as we get closer through, as we get to our final one in Rotterdam, I think mm-hmm. there'll be a picture painted by then. Oh,
2: amazing. So you're, you're really busy in the lead up then as well, aren't you? It's not like, you know, you've time off and, get, and prepare at home. You're out there competing.
3: We're very busy um, looking at results, looking at the live streaming lots coming in from all around the world because we have riders at the moment in America. Hmm. you know we have them on various tours in in spain and france at the moment constantly going out to see them on these tours competing to make my selection for these nation's cup so everybody gets a fair chance to compete and be selected for rio
2: that's brilliant thank you so much i know that you know you're so busy that i could only have you for 20 minutes but i could talk to you for hours i'd love to you know get your story too
3: <laughs> it's all very exciting it really is it's it, uh, Exciting times, and I feel really lucky to be in this position to be working with our top riders.
2: And we can follow you. We can follow you at Team GBR, so we can see all the updates, everything that's going on, and we'll look out for the announcement in July. Um, good luck! Di. We're, we're all rooting for you and the team, and we wish everybody the best of luck. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll speak to you soon. Hopefully, when you come back from Rio with some gold medals, maybe we could catch up then.
3: Okay. <laughs> thank you very much that'd be nice
2: take care bye thank you bye i'd like to introduce to you claire williams she is the executive director of beta and has been with beta for over 16 years if anybody knows anything about safety and the trade claire is your go-to person how are you claire I'm good, thank you, Amy. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're, we're going to talk a bit about safety and about food and about things that we should be looking out for within the industry. And you guys are at the forefront for helping us, which is amazing. But first of all, can you tell us a little bit about you? Where are you from originally? I was born
3: in New Zealand um, a long time ago. Um, my parents are British, which is why I get to work here. Um, they emigrated in the fifties, and I was born out there. With them. my one of my brothers was born there, and the rest of us were born around the world because Dad was an army guy, and he transferred out to the UK to uh, to New Zealand for which I am eternally grateful for because it was a fantastic place to grow up. Oh, Yeah, it
2: is. Where did you live? I'm from Christchurch. Oh, that's easy. <laughs> yeah, that's easy.
3: <laughs> that's the one that had all the earthquakes a few years ago.
2: Oh no! Was that yeah. everyone okay there? Did you know anyone in it?
3: Oh yeah, no, loads. My my parents lived there, and um, my brother, one of my brothers, and they, they're, they're all fine. Um, they both lost their houses, but oh, that that was the experience. But they're they're both fine, and um, they're in new houses. So
2: everything's oh, bless okay. Them. It's scary when things. Yeah, it's scary when things like that happen. Yeah. It um, does. So, in terms of your your equestrian knowledge, then, do you have horses yourself? I do. I um, I left New Zealand, gosh, in
3: 1990, and spent ten years in Germany working, not with horses, but I was really lucky to live in a really horsey part of Germany. Um, and lived on a stud, um, but worked for a totally different type of company for a sheepskin tannery, actually. And then I came to the UK in 2000, and yes, um, I was a late comer to horses. Um, Parents totally (laughs) non-horsey, one of five kids, so definitely no horses on the agenda. Mm -hmm. And so I started to learn to ride on ex-trotters um, in Christchurch um, when I graduated from university and I had some of my own money so I could afford to ride and so I've now been riding for gosh 30-ish years oh my gosh. Um, and I now have um, I, I rode other people's horses in Germany because I couldn't have my own and then I had my own horses in New Zealand and I now currently am the owner of a somewhat stroppy Lusitano mare.
2: Oh wow oh my gosh I bet she moves beautifully. Oh, she's particularly good at ears above the ground
3: um, <laughs> and she collects very easily. But mm. she's, she's, she's a real character, but they are because Lusitanos are fascinating. A lot of them come from bullfighting stock, and that's why they are really, really strong characters. But um, and she's lovely, and she's a dun, and I've always, always wanted to own a dun, so
2: um, she's fab. Oh, stunning. Um, It's really interesting you say you you came into riding later because I did too, and it was through my parents had no clue about horses, like literally nothing, and no, no, my mum doesn't even want to go anywhere near them now, and um, Dad said uh, every Christmas I used to ask Father Christmas for a horse until I was fifteen, and and the the excuses bless them were Father Christmas doesn't bring real live animals. Father Christmas can't yeah. get can't get a horse on his sleigh. um Literally, there was everything. And then when I was fifteen, he was very honest, and he said, "Look, Amy, I think you're you're old enough to understand. We can't afford to buy your horse, and we can't afford the upkeep. So when you can afford to buy a horse yourself, you can have one." So at twenty eight, I phoned him and said, "Guess what, Dad? I've just bought a horse. <laughs> <laughs> it's lovely." So do you do dressage or, or jumping? I used to event and adored
3: it. Um, and then in Germany I got really into dressage and that's what I tend to do now um, I, I love to jump but don't really and mine will jump actually she does enjoy it but no I tend to keep my feet on the floor <laughs> so yes it's dressage and hacking I haven't done much dressage competition I just don't have time mm. so even though she's eight she's very low mileage because I travel a lot with work so I'm away a lot mm. so um, not a lot of chance but um, when I get the chance
2: um, yeah, I love it. What, where do you have to travel to for work?
3: Um, lots of meetings around the country. We're based in North Yorkshire, um, very, very lovely part of the country. I adore it, but it's a long way from London. So mm. I have quite a few mon- meetings in London, go to Stonely a lot because that's where a lot of the other um, equestrian organisations are based, and then have lots of committee meetings, usually in the Midlands. And then part of our job, one of the benefits we offer members, is we source funding to help companies uh, develop their export markets. And so part of my job also means we go off to overseas trade shows and I coordinate groups to help get them into the market because my background is export marketing. So we take groups to um, Germany and uh, we have taken groups to the UAE, to Mm -hmm. North America. We had a big group at the World Equestrian Games in France and we have a show, conveniently for me, in
4: Australia. Oh, lovely. Um,
3: so, yeah, so that that's some of the travelling we do. And then I, I sit on a couple of European committees mm. to do with safety. And so those meetings tend to be either in Germany or in Ireland. So I travel over there as well.
2: Oh, Claire, no wonder you've got no time. <laughs> You're too busy helping everybody else. <laughs>
3: Yeah, but you need your riding. It's, it's what keeps you sane.
2: Yeah. So let's just explain for those that don't know exactly what BETA is. BETA is the British Equestrian Trade Association. So we are
3: a membership body. Companies join us and they join us to get the benefits that we then offer our members. And some of those are cash benefits. So, for example, if you exhibit at the trade fair that we run called Beta International, and you're a member, you get a big discount of the cost of your um, trade stand to the member. Mm. Um, If you're a retail member, we offer a load of benefits. We give travel subsidies to retailers who attend Beta International. We do a show sponsorship voucher scheme where we basically give members small chunks of money to help sponsor mainly local shows and riding club events. So they join us to get those benefits, what I call the hard benefits, and then there are lots of other soft benefits about being a member of BETA. And they can range from getting to use our logo. A lot of people will use the BETA logo to show they belong to us so that if something goes wrong, people have somebody to go to to help try and put it right. And we do a lot of training. We run loads of training courses. I think last year we trained a 1,000 people. Wow. In various aspects of the industry, from how to fit a body protector and a hat onto a customer, to how to set up your Facebook page. We did a social media course last year.
2: Well, see, I see you as the parent of the businesses. So you're the helping, holding hand if they need any help or need any advice. Because let's be honest, business is tough. and. Yeah. There are so many people in the equestrian industry that love horses, and they take the next step to having a livery yard, to having a shop, to maybe launching a brand, but they don't actually know how to do it. No, that's really true, and it can also be really lonely, mm. and so
3: quite often we'll get, sometimes we feel a bit like an agony aunt, Um <laughs> Or people will phone us and say, well, I'm having problems. Does anyone else have that same problem? And it's sometimes just knowing that Mm. there are other people out there facing the same thing. And I think that's why our networking events, we run a couple of conferences every year. And it gives people the chance to meet with like-minded people and share those experiences. Mm. So, yeah, we're we're there to help and support, really, in, in any way we can. And then also try and reinvest back into the industry. And so in lobby, that's one of the big soft benefits is we're there to talk to government and very specific bits of government for my members when they need to, whether that's trying to get more funding for export marketing from Mm. UK Trade Investment or whether it's trying to ensure our feed manufacturers aren't hit too heavily by pieces of legislation that may have been designed for different types of feed. Um, so we are there really to fight the corner when you need somebody to rip with the group.
2: It's brilliant. You're, but you're on top of that. You're, you're the leader in the equestrian trade industry, definitely. Um, but you're also paving the way for industry knowledge. Not only do you mentor the traders and the businesses, not only do you support them, but you're also at the forefront of, of helping us with safety. So it's not just trade, it's also us amateur riders too. You understand and you've helped with all the safety regulations, is that correct?
3: Yeah, well, yeah, we, we, we have put where we can into the development of the safety standards and we're also there to help um, organisations when they're redoing their rules to try and help them, guide them through what is, really complicated and sometimes very confusing area Mm. um yeah i mean and that's important because we need you know we need riders without riders we don't have a business but more importantly we need safe riders and that that it's come out of our history because beta developed the first body protector standard in the 80s when there was no standard about.
4: Oh really?
3: Yeah, it started out, the jockey club had their own sort of say standard, which wasn't really a standard, they just looked at the garments. And then a number of manufacturers got together with Beta and we wrote that first standard document that then when the... PPE directive came into play, which is a personal protective equipment, and we had to have a European standard.
4: Mm. Uh, The
3: beta standard was converted to the European standard, but we still ran and we still do run the beta approval mark, which everybody will see on their body protectors, Um, and that shows that not only does it meet the European standard, but it exceeds it because of the additional things that we build into the beta part of the quality mark.
2: For us, it's nice to be able to see something that we recognize, like the beta mark, because it is a minefield. we I'll be honest, I don't know what's safe and what's the European legislation against the other legislations. I know there's a an EN13 something, something. It, to me, I get so confused. So be, to be able to see some a, a company that I trust, like yourselves, that says, this is okay, this is safe, I'm happier with that.
0: Mm.
3: And I think that's why it was always there, was because people, and then why should riders be expected to understand what makes the ASTM F1163 hat standard different from the PAS 015 or the, you know, there are all these, they're just numbers. And so Mm. our role is to try and help clarify some of that confusion. And, you know, some people are really interested in the detail and we can give people detail. And sometimes they just want to know, this is the number on my hat, am I okay?
2: Yes, yeah. So, so the, the, new, the new regulations that have just come out then for British eventing. Yeah, the new rules, yep. What's the difference between what was and what is now? The main difference is that the, the European hat standard called
3: the 1384 um, should have been revised years ago, but this is a short version, not the long-boring version. <laughs> Basically, the committee couldn't agree on the new form of the standard, and the European Commission got sick of waiting and basically said okay we're going to withdraw something called the presumption of conformity um anybody who has a hat they'll see maybe a standard in it but they'll also see the ce mark and the ce mark is like the blanket mark that says this piece of safety equipment does what it says on the tin Mm. And to be able to put that CE mark on, a company has to prove it meets certain basic health and safety requirements, which is usually contained within the European standard for that particular garment. Right. When there is no standard, then companies have to do other things to show it, and what the Commission decided was they would withdraw that presumption of conformity from 1384, and suddenly it couldn't be used for CE marking. And at that point, all of the disciplines decided, oh, we'd better not continue to allow it, or they wanted a longer lead-in period, because we don't have a new standard to Mm. currently use. We're still trying to agree. And now I've started sitting on that committee. It's really difficult, so um, we may have some time to go. But the main difference is the 1384, you cannot use it for eventing. Um, you can use it for some of the other disciplines. British Dressage have allowed it till the end of the year. Endurance are allowing it till the end of the year. Riding for the disabled and showing, basically, are the main ones that I've said will give 1384 another year, largely in the hope that we would have agreed the new European standard, Um, but I don't know whether that's going to happen. So British eventing, who do tend to lead the way when it comes to safety rules, they've laid out which standards they will accept and most of the others have pretty much followed behind them, so riding club and BHS and show jumping all pretty much accept what British eventing accept. as does British dressage,
2: the exception there is they also allow the thirteen eighty four It's very complicated, but um... yeah. But what do we think? Obviously, we don't know. But because my my confusion was why was it British eventing? But the other disciplines, if it's if it's not safe enough for British eventing, why is it not safe enough for the others as well? But it sounds like they will come on side and agree with British yeah. eventing just in a longer period of time, just in a different time frame. And that's because
3: for some of them, they've only just started demanding safety hats. Mm. Yeah, and some of them don't demand them at all. So it seemed to be a bit, I think, draconian to suddenly do a total about face, um, and for many people it would involve, you know, added expense. So I think you've just got organisations quite rightly responding to what their members need. And British Eventing accept a really wide variety of hat standards, and that's because they have so many international riders who will turn up with foreign standards. Mm. So that's the difference. So I think you're just talking it's a different time frame, but they'll all get there in the end. And and inherently, 1384 isn't unsafe. It, it, it's, it's still off. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game
4: without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods,
3: and did offer for the period that it was used a fantastic level of safety and a real improvement on what went before
2: well so that's good so it's not like they're saying okay well what you've been doing up until now it doesn't work and um, we no. have to move over it's just like anything there's new technology and we, yep. we think that it's a, this one's extra safe yeah exactly and, and hats are a really complicated piece of kit
3: People look at them and think, oh, there's nothing complicated. But the way they're made, the way they're designed, and the type of impacts they're designed to absorb, the littlest things can make real difference. And when I'm asked which is the safest hat, really the best answer is almost, well, you tell me exactly what type of accident you're going to have,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, and then
3: I'll tell you what hat you should have been wearing at the time. <laughs> and that's because to, to, to give a hat added strength in one direction might mean something else has to be changed that might affect another bit of protection that's being offered. Mm. So, um, you know, the key thing though, and when I say an item is, no matter what, your hat has to fit you correctly. So please, if you're listening and you have a chin strap that's not done up properly or you haven't checked that it fits you properly, do, because if it doesn't stay on your head, then it's not going to do the job. So that's why we put so much emphasis on fitting because, you know, if you've had a hat for a few years, it won't fit you as well as it did when it was brand new. No. I change I change my hat maybe every year to eighteen months because when I'm riding, I ride every day, and I find that it basically loosens up after a year to eighteen months, and I have to get a new one.
2: Oh my gosh, you're putting me to shame here because I haven't changed my hat in four years, and I noticed the other day I was sitting trot and it slid down just above to just above my eyes, and I thought, yeah. actually, maybe now is time to get a new hat.
3: Do you have laces at the back?
2: No.
3: Okay. Sometimes if you've got a hat with what that is, the retention harness is what it's called in technical terms, and you will quite often see them they've got laces at the back, mm-hmm. and if it starts to do that, you can tighten the laces, and that helps sort of like anchor it on your head better. But yeah, we, we tend to recommend every four to five years, seriously think about changing your hat. Um, because just daily wear and tear, you know, how many times have you knocked it off a table or, mm. and, and one drop, depending on what type of drop to the ground as you walk across the yard isn't going to fatally damage the hat. But if you do that every day, then it will be sustaining a degree of injury in effect of a hat, a damage. And so that's why we say, you know, just general wear and tear every four to five years to really think seriously about changing
2: it. Claire, do you remember the old chin straps that we used to have? What happened to those? The cups. You mean the chin cups? Yeah, they were really unattractive but you had to have it on your chin. (laughs) And gave you
3: spots. Um, uh, They stopped being used. A lot of hat manufacturers actually thought they were really good because they helped anchor the hat. Um, There was some concern that if you had an accident um, you could bite your tongue off or there was lots of there was lots of concerns at the time; where it could possibly cause more damage. That's why they got rid of them. Oh, well, I'm kind of glad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not attractive locks.
2: No, trying to eat a sandwich with your hat on was always quite difficult. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Even my talk on your phone because the net mobiles in those days.
2: So, so, beta offer training then and advice on on how to fit a hat and how to make sure that your hat is fitted properly. So, where do we need to go to get our hat checked?
3: You need to. I well, I would say this one night. Um, you need to go to a Beta retail member mm-hmm. who's been trained by Beta. Uh, there are manufacturers' courses around, but where the Beta training slightly differs is that we give retailers the principles of fitting. So we don't teach a retailer how to fit a specific brand or model. We say, these are the principles you need to understand. And that's why all of our fitting training tends to be to retailers, because to fit from scratch, you've got to have a range of hats. Mm. And, And so that's why we say, really, go to a retailer who's been trained by us and they'll normally have a certificate on the wall with the person's name who's done the course and then you can also now actually we do a City and Guilds Level 3 qualification. Oh really? Which, you know, it's a bit of a gold gold plating but there are quite a few people that have done it so that's that's sort of added training and it's more a proof that you've done it whereas a certificate, is most of my members who do the training get the certificate and then occasionally we do training for um, instructors Mm. um, and riding instructors and some medics and that is all about checking the fit so we give people the tools so they can check the fit so if an instructor has a riding school they want to know that the people coming to ride their hat fits them properly so we give them the skills to check the fit but then we'd always say go to a professional who has the range of hats to then check that and then sell you a correctly fitted hat.
2: Especially with um, the the so many people are buying on the internet now and they're buying body protectors and they're buying hats and mm. not necessarily getting them, them checked. You do offer some of your competitions, you offer free body protector and hat checks, don't you?
3: Yeah, yeah, we do. And mainly at the, we do. We don't do a lot of shows, but we do sort of three big events. We sponsor Bramham, which is our local horse trials, which is fantastic, Mm -hmm. which is at the beginning of June. We do the Festival of British Eventing at Gatcombe. We're the presenting sponsor. At Bramham, we actually sponsor a class, which is really exciting.
4: Oh, which Um,
3: class? We sponsor the CIC three-star. Oh,
4: nice.
3: Which which is the one-day event is what I try and refer to it as. But this year, we're thrilled because it's the final selection trial. Rio oh my um, gosh at yeah so we're thrilled really excited
2: so will you know will you know then who goes through before everybody else
3: no 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 it's one of the selection trials so oh. <laughs> um they, they apparently it's the last site for people that are on the short list or something like that so oh, that's exciting um, yeah it is because normally our class finishes on the Saturday and this year they're actually going to do the show jumping on the Sunday so it will actually run over three days, so we're really excited about that. Oh, brilliant. Um, so we do it at Bramham and Gatcombe and then at Your Horse Live. And at, certainly at Bramham and Gatcombe, people can come to our stand and enter competitions and get in the chance to get a goodie bag. We do really good goodie bags. Mm-hmm. And then we also have a big prize drawer that people can enter in to get a thousand pounds worth of horsey goodies.
2: Oh, amazing. We could always do yeah. with the extra bits for our horse. Yeah. Absolutely, and then we do hat checks here. Um, so we can just bring along our hat and our body protection. Yeah. Because do you do? Do you have the code for the new like hit air vests and those type, the air jackets? No, we don't do the we
3: don't do ear vests. Fitting. That's something we've never gone into.
2: Mm. We are working
3: with the air vest manufacturers because there's no standard for air vests at the moment. There's a private standard that some of them test to, um, but we we sat down last year um, and now that we've sort of got into March, oh gosh, halfway through March, mm-hmm. it's on the list of things to do to revisit that and we're hoping to develop a standard for air vests
2: oh that would be great because it's so difficult to know which you you think they're going to be better because they blow out and they protect your neck and Mm. but think stupid things Claire and I'm going to sound like such an idiot when I say this now but like can you ask them can you wear a a high vis thing over the top or can they create high vis jackets because you never know if it explodes outwards if it's going to you can't wear a jacket over the top
3: Yeah, you've got to wear really... There are some which are built into, like, blouse-on jackets. Mm -hmm. You do have to make certain that anything you wear over the top is loose, without a doubt, to give it room to expand. That's that's one of the challenges. I think that's why it's best for the the person selling you to fit them, because Mm -hmm. we're not experts in air vests. But that's why we also maintain you should always wear an air vest with a body protector, because it's like an airbag in the car. You wouldn't get in your car without doing your seatbelt up. Mm -hmm. Your seatbelt... Is your body protector and then the air vest is like your airbag in the car it gives you that added degree of protection that you need when a certain thing happens and in cars obviously it's hitting something and the horses it's falling off mm. so that's why they work so well together
2: and um, now you've got the beta bounty helmet scheme haven't you where you help people yeah. what, what's that that's brand new for this year um,
3: It's for eventing cross-country, and it means that as a rider, if you fall off cross-country and suffer a concussion, so the uh, medical officer signs you off and says, yes, you've got a concussion, as long as we get the form back um, with the hat that the person was wearing when they fell off, which has to be done at the event, we will send them a voucher for £100 for them to go out and buy a new hat.
2: That's amazing. What was the reason that you came up with the Bounty Helmet Scheme? A couple of things. One was we thought it would really help reinforce the message
3: that we try to to put across that, If you have an accident, if you bang your head, then replace your hat. Mm -hmm. Pretty straightforward. But also to get the hats back, um, because we're wanting to do some research to try and link the damage a hat suffers with the damage the head suffers so that we can use that in the future as we develop the hat standards. Brilliant. And, and And with concussion you know that's why people might say oh why don't you know if we just fall off why can't we have the voucher and it's because we need to know that the hat sustained a certain amount of damage mm. and if the person wearing it has concussion then we know the type of damage that they've sustained
2: yes I guess it's all it's just continuous research isn't it and um, yeah. the more the more information that you have over a period of time the more that we can develop and make everything a little bit safer I love all the research that you do into the industry as well you know how many people are riding and how many businesses are out there and, and all that kind of industry knowledge I think mm. I I think it's brilliant because it helps us then know where we're going as an industry. Yeah and I think it's really
3: important that we've done it over such a long period of time we actually started the first survey National Equestrian Survey in 1995
4: mm-hmm.
3: and then we did it in 1999 and then we've done it pretty much every four to five years since and what Really invaluable. If you then build up this this trend data so that you can actually see. Okay, we had a recession in two thousand and eight. Right, yes, that did have an impact on the industry. We we lost numbers of riders and we number of horses went down and expenditure went down. And now we can see the change in the patterns and things are starting to move upwards. And and that's. It's really important for the sporting bodies to have that. The British Equestrian Federation really value the research because it gives them a lot of data that they wouldn't otherwise have Businesses need that, you know. If you if you're trying to launch a brand or a product, it's useful to know how much people spend, um, or what sort of activities they do with their horses, and whether that's changed over the years. So it's something we really believe in, and we're looking at other areas of research as well. We we have something called a an online research panel that riders can join, mm-hmm. and then. We do sort of three to four surveys a year, which are littler surveys, which members can buy into if they have bits of information they need to know. uh, They can buy into that. And we have, I think, about 5,000 people on that. And it's also... You know, I love, I'm a real questionnaire geek. I always <laughs> say yes when people say, well, you do research.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, but a lot of people like doing it because it's their chance to shape the future of our industry. If somebody's researching a new product, then it's their opinion could shape what shape that takes what form that takes or what packaging it's in so it's really everybody's chance to influence what's oh, coming out on the market
2: absolutely we'll look at hrp saddle pads um, yeah. helen won the beta innovative product of the year and her product is scientifically proven to have no pressure on the horse during any gate because it's a saddle mm-hmm. pad and it's like things like that where people, individual, individual businesses, they come up with new products that literally can shape the future of the industry. Yeah, and and in the
3: UK is really, I think, in Europe and in the world, unique like that. When we have Beta International... The number of innovative companies that come to it and the number of smaller companies who, you know, they're people, they had an idea Mm. and they then be able to develop that and research it and bring it to market. I'm always amazed at how many new products are launched at
2: the show. And it's exciting and it shows that we still have passion there and there are still people that are pushing our industry and pushing it and, you know, with the government trying to get new people riding and, and the businesses trying to get, you know, launching new products and then it's just, I, I think it's a really, this year, for, I feel, is a really exciting year. I don't know why, yeah. but I feel it like 2016, everybody's just got this bump of, okay, whatever we're doing, we it's all a very positive attitude. I love it.
3: Yeah, and, and I think there is lots happening. We do something when we go to trade fair. We have our own stand, obviously, and talk to members and people who are interested in joining. And, and we sort of did a What's New for 2016. And when we finished writing it, we thought, God, it's really long. Yeah. <laughs> We've got loads of things mm-hmm. going on. It did, I think everything just seems to come to fruition. And everything seems to have come to fruition at the same time this time. Yeah,
2: so, but yeah, we forget that it's, there's, there's been a long time building up to these things, though. And there's months, if not years, of of building up to them because moving on to your horse feed you really do have a lot going on because you've got the NOPS scheme what does NOPS stand for? Naturally Occurring Prohibited Substances which doesn't mean
3: every prohibited substance the NOPS scheme is relates to a, a NOPS list, which we developed for racing. So not all prohibited substances are on there. We're looking at the ones that tend to occur naturally, mm-hmm. so they end and end up accidentally in raw material, um, and that's where the NOPS list comes up from. That's why it's called the NOPS again.
2: So it's ingredients that are in horse feeds that we might not realise are in the horse feeds.
3: They shouldn't be there. They're things that end up there accidentally. So. The reason it was developed actually, and this will surprise a lot of people, was because we were having issues years ago, probably 10 years ago, with increasing quantities of morphine poppies being grown in the UK. Really? Um, And most people think of opium poppies as something that comes from the field of Afghanistan, Mm. but actually the UK is nearing almost being self-sufficient in the production of opium. Wow. And they grow these crops around the country and farmers are licensed to grow them. And at the time, we had some issues with basically poppy heads ending up in places that they shouldn't end up in. Mm -hmm. And they caused real problems for my members because the nature of the way it ends up in them it was literally like looking for a needle in a haystack Mm. so you could look at 98% of a load and not find anything because it was in the 2% you Mm. didn't look for Mm. and so that's why we developed the scheme really and then we thought okay what else might end up accidentally in some of the raw material that causes problems with the authorities and by the authorities we primarily meant racing but also now the FEI and so the substances that are on the list the people will be really surprised at Um, and they tend to be things that are grown that that crop up as weeds in a crop so one of the substances is something called hyacinth which most people will never have heard of but it's on an FEI list it's on one of the FEI list I think it is a controlled medication I might be wrong. So um, like,
2: is it like an anesthetic? What would you believe? No, no, no. Would you
3: believe? hyacinth is grown as produced by nightshade or in the plant called Datura. And that tends to occur as a weed in the crop that it most commonly, commonly occurs in, and that's sunflower. Oh. That's grown around the world, and sunflower is used in horse feed. So that's, it's, it ends up there by accident, mm. it's pulled out during harvest, and might end up in the crop. It's very rare. But the, the substances that are there are, are on the list for a reason because they are, they've occurred in the past. They've often never caused a problem, but they're a problem if they do end up in a horse's blood or urine. So one of the substances on that list is caffeine. Oh,
0: right. And it's
3: not because it's likely to occur in the plant, but sometimes the way some of the raw materials are, are processed or if they're processed with other things that might contain caffeine, there's a problem. Mm. Um, and that's why we do lots of education as well for riders, where we can say, actually, if you make your coffee in your feed room, that's probably not
2: a good idea. My gosh, I always have coffee with me.
3: Always, there you,
2: go. you know, I go to I go to the yard with a with a cup of coffee. And I'm sat, so I've got to keep that well away from the horse. Then,
3: yep, yeah, or chocolate. theobromine comes from co- cocoa. And so a friend of mine, she had a dressage horse that she rode for somebody, and the owner, after every dressage test, would give it a chocolate biscuit. Mm. And I said, don't do that because that could have theobromine and cause problems if the horse was ever tested. So if for your average, you know, leisure rider, hobby rider, they don't have to worry about any of this because none of these things are poisonous or dangerous.
4: Oh, They're
3: just a problem if their urine is tested and it's there. And so the whole scheme is all about. Not guaranteeing everything anything because you can't because of the way the contamination occurs it's all about helping the companies reduce the risk of it ever occurring in the first place
2: right okay and have you seen that do you know if the numbers have gone down then
3: oh yeah hugely oh, yeah brilliant. when you look at the, the figures over the years we we have an annual feed conference and one of the testing labs always comes along with the results so we can track where there've been problems in crops, or mm. or the the pattern, and and certainly since the introduction of the scheme in two thousand and eight nine, the level of um, morphine positives has plummeted.
0: Oh, brilliant!
3: So, so, we know we know it works, but it's all about awareness raising and making people aware of the risk, and not only just thinking oh, it must be in the feed, but also thinking about what they're doing. So things like keeping your coffee segregated from your horse feed and not mixing your stirrers or if one horse is on, a medication. So we do general medication education as well Mm. because a lot of people really perhaps aren't as careful in their stable management or their medication management as they should be.
2: The poor people then that are going and racing these horses or going to competitions, they could well have been doing everything correctly but they're going to have those prohibited substances by accident. That would just be that would be torture, wouldn't it, if your horse mm. got tested? And you'd be so confused as to why it had the prohibited substance if you've done everything correctly. Mm, exactly, and that's why the
3: companies have really supported the scheme, because it's a tool they can use mm. to help them reduce that risk. And, so, and it has, and that's why you know the little green logo which says NOPS on it that it's no guarantee. Really, really have to emphasise that. The companies can do everything they possibly can, but they might just be unlucky. But if you see that green logo, then you know they have done everything they can possibly do. Yeah. And, and so that you're facing really a much lower risk than otherwise you might have faced.
2: And that's not one of the only feed marks you have, is it? Because you've got a brand new one that you've just launched. We have a brand new one that's not even on the market yet because
3: <laughs> of, it takes months for people to get through the approval process. So we're hoping that you'll see it in the autumn and next winter. And it is a scheme which is for feeds that are suitable for horses and ponies prone to gastric ulcers.
2: So this is brilliant because there's, there's so much marketing out there for horse feeds. You've got a, a feed or a, um, nutrients that we often get for horses that have laminitis, for horses that are at rest, for horses that are old, for horses that are young, for horses that do a lot a lot of work, for horses that do no work. You know, it's so difficult to know what do you really need and is this marketing true and so taking on a different a different issue is the gastric ulcers which are huge so a friend of mine mm. her horse had a gastric ulcer and it took months of recovery and it's that she's got to look at the nutrition she's got to look at the diet the exercise There's a a massive, massive rehabilitation plan that goes into helping a horse that's got this. So what your feed mark will say is it's categorically this will help if a horse has a, a gastric ulcer. It's an
3: appropriate diet for a horse with a gastric ulcer. The whole idea is that we were looking at conditions that were influenced by nutrition. And all the research says that with gastric ulcers, a certain type of diet will help a horse along its way. So we're not saying it will cure it. Mm -hmm. Um, What we're saying is if your horse is prone to gastric ulcers, this diet will not make it worse. This is really a, a typical diet which a horse with gastric ulcers should be eating. And that's the key. So the scheme is based on looking at the research and then designing an appropriate criteria that feeds have to meet to be able to apply to use the mark and that also includes things like their packaging and labeling so the veterinary medicines directorate that is responsible for licensing medicine and probably more importantly looking at the claims that feed companies make to make certain, they don't step across that line. So they have had an input into the development of the scheme and they will also approve any company coming onto it. They'll approve the literature that the company uses. So you sort of get the double assurance because feed companies, they are controlled by a huge amount of legislation. People probably don't realise that a company will make claims on their packaging and labelling And they're making those claims. If they make a claim, they have to be able to substantiate it. That's what the legislation says. And we provide a lot of advice to companies through a guide that we do on what they can and can't say. But it is a really, really complicated area. But rest assured, those companies out there are doing their best to make certain that they are complying with what they can and can't say. Um, And sometimes, most of the time, they get it right. Sometimes they don't. Um, but there are, you know, there are, there are organisations and there are regulators out there that will pick companies up and say, no, you have done it wrong. So, so having a mark on a bag sometimes just helps guide the buyer as to its suitability for their particular horse.
2: Yeah, it helps us definitely because for us, there's so many different options and, you know, people like Denji are brilliant. They come out to the yard and they'll give they'll give talks and they'll do the weight check and give you advice oh, yeah. on what feed and, that, and that's amazing. But when you've got a horse that has a condition, you never know, you don't know which which brand to trust or which product to use. It's very, very difficult. And I guess the, the vets will be recommending these, the products that have the Aegis, is it Aegis? Is that how you We call it the Aegis mark because the VMD don't want us to,
3: which is understandable. So it has the rather cumbersome name of the feed approval mark for feed. Suitable for horses and ponies, but yeah, okay. it's, it's, it's all to do with the Aegis. So um, those marks, yeah, your yeah. vet should, the vet should then, once he's treated the horse, will then say it needs a diet like this and will give a, a diet, you know, give, give the owner instructions on what type of feed to feed and that's why for our mark it will only go on compound feed it it won't go into a supplement Mm. a, a supplement because you're looking at it's characterized mainly by high fiber
2: again the thing that we must say is that this isn't a cure like you said earlier it's not a cure for it it's just to help it's it's a diet to help with a horse with that condition, but you okay. must always go on veterinary recommendation anyway, because each yeah, horse exactly. is different. And
3: and not you know and not not all feed which is suitable for horses prone to gastric ulcers will buy into the mark, because at the end of the day it's also a marketing tool, and a company has to weigh up how they spend their marketing money.
4: Mm-hmm. And
3: for some people, they they might want to. Do the mark and other people might say no that's not for us it doesn't mean their feed is any less suitable but having the mark on it just helps people absolutely know that that is right
2: so what sort of process and how long does it take before they get approval oh gosh it's a, it's actually quite a complicated something like a four-step process because we have to get
3: the application, and we have to look at the labels, we have to look at the list of ingredients. We then um, the packaging and promo material has to go to the VMD for approval. We,
2: we just and know then, that you, you and your experts and your team have, have that, got there scientists lots there. of checking. Yeah, yeah.
3: There's, there's an independent nutritionist who looks at the, the how the feed is constituted, and then we double check that it meets the requirements. And then we also get it tested to make certain that the content not not nothing to do with prohibited substances, but make certain that its composition is what it says on the label. So it is quite a lengthy process. So you're talking several months to get through.
0: Gosh,
2: good. <laughs> I'm pleased because it makes our life a lot easier. Thank you. <laughs> it doesn't make my life easier. No, no, no. It just means that you've got less time to ride again. I'm sorry about yeah, that, Claire, but. Then. We are grateful because <laughs> this is great because you're helping helping out the industry again. But you are a you're a representative body for the yeah. trade industry. Yeah. So, are there people that actually regulate the industry at all? Because as far it as like, is, I can see, you've got the BHS, which are a charity. You work with the trade, which is great. But who who oversees the equestrian industry as a whole? Well, there's no
3: one body because you're always looking at different aspects of the industry in terms of regulation. So riding schools will be regulated by the local authority. Um, so your local authority has to inspect a riding school on a regular basis. So that's in effect their regulators, they, they belong to the BHS and will be an approved BHS centre. So that's another form of regulation because BHS will have criteria. Mm. Um, but in terms of broader regulation, there are a number of government bodies who actually look at the regulations and the law and then make certain that the companies comply with that. So, the Food Standards Agency, for example, people think, oh, that's only human food. It's not. They actually also control the legislation for the manufacture of animal feed, Mm -hmm. um, so that includes the horse, and then that legislation is enforced, so it's regulated by local trading standards officers. So, they may visit a feed mill on a regular basis. Um, There are other regulators. So if you buy a horsewormer from a retailer, they will have to have a suitably qualified person called an SQP in their shop that authorises every sale. That person is regulated by the Veterinary Medicines Directorate. They have of inspectors that go out
2: and visit all premises that sell
3: medicines.
2: But in terms of instructors, though, there's, is there a, regu- a regulatory body uh, that covers instructors? Because you can choose to be a BHS-approved instructor. Yeah. But um, I could be wrong here, but I thought anybody could go out and be an instructor, which really worried me. I think you're right. There is no law
3: control, as far as I'm aware, but I, that's not my field at all. No, yeah. It's not my area. But uh, But I think that's where the trade bodies come in. So whether it's BHS for riding instructors or the SMS for they have a register of saddle fitters. So a lot of these professions or, you know, farriers are regulated by the Farrier Registration Council. So there are lots of individual registration and regulation bodies that have grown out of time.
2: So it's just because that's what what scared me when I heard that. So I don't, again, I don't know. I need to do some more research into it and I will, but um. If it is true that anybody could be an instructor, that just means that we need to be more proactive when looking for instructors is to making sure that they are registered with somebody and they do have qualifications and they do know what they're doing because yeah. at the end of the day, we're putting our lives in their hands. And our horses. And yeah, and also
3: to make certain they've got insurance, you know, mm. and, and you know, some, some people are really good instructors that may not be registered with, with people. Then you, you just have to be aware and make that decision that you find somebody good and if they're not registered then that's your choice but yeah I think an awareness of that situation I think is always good you need to know what you're buying into Mm. and what you're not buying into
2: yeah exactly and you've also got a great new initiative coming up haven't you to try and get more people riding that's right
3: take up the reins launches at the end of this month
2: that's brilliant and hashtag you've got a hashtag get horsey
3: yeah, the whole idea is really just to get, get people involved with horses. It came very much out of the research that we finished last year, which said the number of riders had gone down, which mm. really worried us. So we thought, what can we do proactively? Because that's important for our members as well. If we, they, we don't have riders, then most of my businesses wouldn't have a business. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so they, so we thought. Okay, what can we do? And let's just try and broaden it. So it's it's a two pronged approach. One is promote riding,
0: mm-hmm.
3: uh, or and getting horsey. So you know, go out and volunteer, work at a local charity, or um, help at an event, or even just go and watch something with horses. Just get horsey, uh, and if you want to get on a horse, great. Um, so part of it is all about promoting the benefits of riding. And the other part is the tour that we're doing with um, our mechanical horses. We have two of our own, who are called Trigger and Robocop. Oh, brilliant. And, and then we borrow from the BEF is supporting us through their hoof campaign. Mm. And they are lending us, when we need him, um, Henry. I think you spoke to Anna a while ago. Did, so she's yes. yes. Yeah. she working yeah. with us on this.
2: Oh gosh, that would be brilliant. So how can we get involved? Where can we, how can we see trigger? You
3: can go to the website, takeuptherains.co.uk, and there is a tab on the website with all of his tour dates. So we're going to be at a we're going for non horsey events. Mm-hmm. Well the only exception to that is Gatcom, because we always have Robo at Gatcom. But we're we're really trying to take into places that people to reach people who really aren't horsey. So we're doing the sports relief games. Oh, wow! <laughs> and then we've got a series of events from going to John Lewis and Trafford to county shows. Um, we're going to the Great North Run Pasta Party, which we did a few years ago when we did something similar, also in an Olympic year. And mm. um, the idea is that we should be at between twenty and thirty events across the year. Do you know what's funny is we
2: have uh, in, in I, I live in or I live in the New Forest, and um, about twenty minutes away from me is Sandbanks and it's a beach and it's a lovely area and every year they do the Sandbanks polo although nobody horsey ever goes it's only people that aren't horsey it's hilarious (laughs) and then you get a massive uplift of people that are saying oh i'm going to go and try polo i'm I'm," you know they've never ridden before but they want to go and give it a go if you can lend me robo i think he'd do very well down there (laughs) he would because the same company that makes them actually makes a polo
3: simulator oh perfect yeah, I know, he is. And again, it really gives people that, okay, it's not like riding a horse across a beach, but just that feeling, and it mm. has this magical effect, even on adults, actually, mainly on children, they get the most enormous grin on their face.
0: Yeah
3: when they feel and move and yeah because you can walk and trot and canter so no they're brilliant they're brilliant pieces of kit and it just means that we can take the horses to people rather than trying to get the people to come to the horses
2: mm. and it would be really good i'd love to take my other half mark i've been trying to get him on a horse for ages and he's at that point where he really wants to but um i trust my horse more than i trust him and he's saying i want to go walk trot canter straight away and i'm going no oh. you're going to hurt my horse <laughs> you are not but getting on is yet the perfect tool a lot of people do actually a lot
3: of there are quite a few of these simulators now and quite a few riding schools have them RDA uses them a lot um, Mm. because they just give you that feeling or we've we've had mums come to us with uh, children at some of the events we go to and they're walking and trotting and mum can't run fast enough to get the pony (laughs) into canter and so they want to give the young rider that feeling of what canter feels like because they're really scared and think it must be awful and we say no no it's the nicest bit um, so, all people who are recovering from injury, um, we hire them out. But um, and somebody who was reco- recovering from an injury just wanted to get on them to see whether they could ride without it hurting. Oh wow! So that's yeah, it's really
2: good. They're really, really fantastic pieces of kit Well, um, I might have to borrow one myself. It's amazing fitness, that's for sure.
3: Yeah, a lot of race riders use a a different version of them to get racing fit.
2: If only we were like multi-multi-millionaires, we could have all the kit, couldn't we? Oh no. (laughs) They're not cheap, but you don't have to pay a
3: vet bill, so. Yeah. He does have to be be serviced every year.
2: Oh, but that that won't cost as much. I don't know. (laughs) So we can head to your website, Claire, where we can find out all all the information about the locations of where these are going to be.
3: Yeah, the Take Up the Rains website and then the beta website is beta uk. Dot org, mm-hmm. and that's sort of like anybody who wants to know anything else about hats or body protectors or any of the other things we do. But yeah, the uk is the website for the tour. You can also look for somewhere to ride on there. Um, there's a, a database of companies that we used to publish uh, a riding holiday guide and that's got all the information. We still do, but we've extended it out to trekking and everything else. So. If you want to try riding somewhere else in the country, mm. and you don't necessarily want to take your horse, then that website will also give you information about where to go.
2: I was literally on your website for ages because I kept finding new things. I was like, Oh, that's really interesting. So now I've persuaded Mark to take me on holiday um, in the UK, where he gets to play golf for three days, and I get to go horse riding for three days. That's brilliant! And that was like the perfect, the perfect combination because he he invited me on a golf holiday. I said, I'm not going to play golf if there's a spa lovely but we were trying to find a compromise so um i found one so thank you again claire oh brilliant oh it's nice to
3: know it works
2: it does yeah it's amazing thank you so much i feel um my brain's been bamboozled (laughs) with all this information but it it makes sense it's brilliant what you do and um, we're really grateful so we can head to your website and can we follow beta on on twitter as well yeah you can it's at beta equestrian and do you have a take up the reins twitter we do it's at take up the reins easy and then hashtag get horsey we should be doing yep. that you know even if we just go yeah. out and we see some horses let's let's include the hashtag get horsey along with your hashtag horse hour yeah i think um tina
3: who's running the campaign put out a tweet the other week saying send us your photos of you getting horsey so we'd love to have everybody's photos of getting horsey Aww. claire it's been a pleasure thank you so much My pleasure. It's been lovely talking to you,
2: Amy. right. We'll speak to you soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Next Monday, I'm talking to Cameron about equine first aid. Now, how would you like to be part of the Riding Club London? It's the unique and extraordinary horse riding experiences for everybody. Basically, they bring together like-minded equine enthusiasts like us of all levels the club offers unique opportunities for horse riding lessons, days out, weekends, and holidays. And you could win a membership worth £400 this week. It's mega easy. All you've got to do is head over to our Twitter page now, hashtag horse hour, and retweet the Riding Club London tweet. And you could be in with a chance of winning the £400 Riding Club London membership. It really is genuinely brilliant. And they do look after all levels. So, everybody, if you're really experienced, then they bring together leading experts in all the equestrian disciplines and there's also a unique opportunity at the household cavalry i mean that would be an amazing experience they offer so much head to www.ridinglondon.com to find out all about the riding club london and i'll look forward to speaking to you next week
3: you've been listening to horse hour Join the community on Twitter, Mondays, 8pm UK time, 3pm Eastern by using the hashtag HorseHour. Follow Amy at Amy Stevenson one and subscribe to us on Acast, iTunes, Stitcher and Player FM. It